You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. On today's episode of Talking Taiwan, I'm welcoming back Tony Coolidge. Tony spoke with us last week about the discovery of his indigenous roots, and now he's going to talk about his work with indigenous people through Indigenous Bridges and the Atayel Organization. Welcome back to the podcast, Tony. Thank you, Felicia. Thanks for having me back. Great. So um, let's talk about Indigenous Bridges. Um, what is it and what are you currently doing with this? Okay. Well, Indigenous Bridges is the name of the programs that uh, connect Indigenous peoples. Um, that's why it's named Indigenous Bridges, to make it obvious to people that what we do. Uh, it's programs that are run by the NGO called Atayal Organization. An Atayal organization was founded in 2001 uh, in the state of Florida, and, and it's also registered in Washington State right now because of the work we do with the Native Americans there. And the Atayal organization was named after the tribe that my mother is from. Uh, it's kind of a way to honor her, her and her and the culture. Um, and what we do is to connect indigenous communities. And the reason why is uh, because we originally founded in 2001 to share Taiwan's indigenous culture. And we also made the documentary film Voices in the Clouds as a way to share the culture. Um, but there was something that always bothered me. In sharing the culture, I never knew how it really affected the people back in Taiwan, any indigenous people back in Taiwan. So that was one of the reasons why I decided to move to Taiwan in 2009 to get a better picture of the indigenous people and, and what really they need and what can help the uh, help them with, with their communities. Um, and also, uh, when we brought indigenous people together for the International Indigenous Heritage Festival, uh, in 2004, we had indigenous people from different countries uh, there in one room. But when they, when I saw them, uh, I, I had them there to share the culture. But what what really hit me was when they were together face to face. The Taiwanese indigenous, the Native Americans, when they lo saw each other, the way they looked at each other was just. Know, very touching and heartwarming. Mm. They they teared up. Wow. They looked at each other like they were relatives. They 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 knew each other and they they started to embrace and cry, and then uh, I don't know. They just felt really warm and 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 it felt like family. So I realized that more important than sharing culture, connecting indigenous people together would be more meaningful and more helpful. So that's what changed our NGO's mission from one of sharing culture to one of bringing the indigenous peoples together. So that, that's how that came about. And indigenous bridges programs are programs developed to bring different tribes together in meaningful ways. And we uh, basically start with culture and uh, education and when we bring indigenous people together, other opportunities seem to follow. Once they build their relationships and trust, other opportunities seem to be natural and come, you know, come into place like uh, tourism exchange, 
trade, you know, economic cooperation. Those those things come later. But you have to start with trust first and relationships uh, that are based around their shared cultures. And, and their cultures are very similar to each other. So it really does build a familiarity and comfort and, uh, and trust. So that's why everything starts with cultural exchange. Mm. And so our organization, Indigenous Bridges, are uh, programs that facilitate culture exchange and create the platforms for other types of exchange as well after that. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about some of the programs that you have um, and how they're benefiting Indigenous peoples? Sure. Uh, Back in 2007, um, in Orlando, Florida, I worked with the mayor of Orlando in the capacity of sister cities, uh, facilitating their sister cities' relationships. Orlando and Tainan City, Taiwan, actually has a sister city relationship. So from the experience of sister cities, I saw the opportunity of sister tribes or sister village relationships that could facilitate uh, more cooperation between the tribes. And so given a vision of a future where there are sister tribes, um, programs have been developed to facilitate that vision. So, for example, we have facilitated a lot of different types of culture exchange uh, programs uh, in events and projects sharing culture in different ways. But right now, our main focus is developing the young leaders who are going to lead the sister tribe relations in the future. So we have an indigenous youth ambassador program, which will be our cornerstone. Uh, What we do is we have indigenous youth from tribes around the world, starting with Taiwan and the Native Americans in Washington State. Um, They are candidates for, you know, future leadership. Um, They they have to be able to share their culture, their native language. Um, They're people that are, you know, have pride in their their indigenous cultures. And and we facilitate and train them uh, and give them leadership opportunities to bring them together to learn how to communicate, uh, cooperate, and to solve problems together. Because indigenous people around the world have similar similar issues, similar problems, and they also have traditional knowledge that actually provides solutions for a lot of the problems we face in society. And so by bringing them together and, and learning their similarities and differences and their advantages we give them the opportunity to work together to create solutions and um, we think this is the way to nurture people that will be the ideal leaders for sister tribe relations in the future so Mm -hmm. um, that's our cornerstone and thanks to COVID-19 these exchanges where we bring indigenous youth to other countries for culture exchange and leadership that's on hold and we're developing uh, virtual culture exchanges and virtual conferences at this time. Mm. Can you talk about some of the common experiences that you alluded to? Like, um, what are some of their common challenges or experiences? Well, 
Um, most indigenous communities face economic challenges. Most indigenous villages and communities have fewer resources. Um, so they don't have the stable family, you know, family upbringing. Most indigenous communities face economic hardships. So that does affect uh, children and how they are raised, uh, whether or not they have their parents around, um, if they're exposed to drugs and alcohol. I mean, they, they're very prevalent in all indigenous communities. And and what, you know, what, what they all have in common is just economic uh, hardships. And so they, they face that. And, and so I think what is important to overcome this shared challenge is how they can actually have their culture and their communities develop sustainable solutions, sustainable economic growth, what can provide job opportunities, and what can be sustainable, sustainable development. So that's, that's an area of training that the future leaders should should learn from so so those can be solved by you know opportunities with uh indigenous tourism tourism exchange that's one area where, that we're looking at uh, a lot of indigenous tourism is gaining interest you know worldwide um they 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 can actually teach a lot the indigenous people when tourists come they can learn about uh sustainability they can learn about uh how to enjoy nature without destroying it so that can become a solution economically as well and and also economic trade i think if indigenous people they do have resources but usually those resources are dominated and exploited by other people corporations but if they can trade if they can create a network of trade between indigenous peoples then uh, that's another way to help their economic situation how would you compare the rights of indigenous people in the U.S. to those in Taiwan and other parts of the world? It has taken a lot of awareness and a lot of uh, advocacy in the USA to help in Native Americans gain the rights that they have and gain the sovereignty that they have. And a lot, many of the tribes in the USA, many of the Native Americans have actually done well with these rights. They, they, they have made the most or they're still working on improving their self-determination using the resources and rights that they have and but they couldn't have done it alone and the government wouldn't have just given it to them on their own it had to be fought for and a lot of advocacy was involved there there were there are many people uh many human rights lawyers attorneys people that know the law who have who have taken the the side of the Native Americans to help them to claim their own rights in 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 the society that we have with the governments that we have, so so it wasn't something they just did on their own, and it's not something the governments offered on their own. So in America, there they the Native Americans have more rights and sovereignty than what they have in Taiwan. In Taiwan, uh, this idea of indigenous rights and sovereignty is very new. In America, it's been around for a while. So, uh, in America, they have uh, been they're further along, much further along than they are in other parts of the world. 
Can you talk about some of the poorer indigenous communities in Taiwan and how they got that way? Why, why are they that way? It, it has a lot to do with many factors, including, you know, like um, people who do have the education choose not to come back. They choose not to be there to give, you know, they gained mm -hmm. all the mm -hmm. education, they gained all the resources, but they are no longer in their community. That's their yes. choice. Yes. They've chosen not to come back. And that that's not helpful mm -hmm, mm -hmm, to the community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So things like that happen. Yeah. What are some of the rights and issues that indigenous people are fighting for, such as land ownership, access to land for hunting or fishing, nuclear waste dumping, environmental concerns? Um, can you comment on that? I would say that the current administration in Taiwan has made some good strides and progress for all of these indigenous issues, nuclear waste dumping, you know, that's been put on hold in Lanyu, Orchid Island. Um, environmental concerns have been addressed more. There's more uh, more focus on it. Um, hunting rights, fishing rights. You know, again, again, there's more efforts in in this government these days to be more aware of and more sensitive to the needs of indigenous people. It started with Lee Ding Hui. You remember when he said that uh, you know we got to stop calling them mountain people and really call them uh, the indigenous of Taiwan and then um, allowing them to have their own names on their ID cards right and I, I plan to do that it's my birthday just passed and the birthday present I wanted to ask my wife to help me do get is get my ID card changed to have my indigenous name on it instead of my Chinese name mm -hmm. and uh, from there, there there's always been bit, been progress made to kind of Bridge the gap, the economic gap, between the indigenous and the non-indigenous. You know, like uh, scholarships for university studies and um, and other resources. Also, in education, indigenous people have some other benefits and rights to help them bridge the gap, the economic gap that indigenous communities face. So, so I think there's a, a really good effort to be sensitive to that gap and, and to find ways to overcome it. It may not be popular among the mainstream society, but I think it, it is important for indigenous people to have opportunities to, to, to bridge across those, the, that gap and the, their challenges. So, um, yeah, I just feel like this current government uh, administration doesn't get enough credit. So going back to your work um, with Indigenous Bridges, um, can you talk about what you've learned from the experience of other Indigenous peoples, meaning from other countries, like in other parts of the world? Like, what sure. would you say maybe like the most different, like outside of Asia, um, any Indigenous groups that you've learned from? I've learned that around the world, the Indigenous people they have different conditions, different situations, but also their mindsets and attitudes and and even their their pride in their own culture and identity. It's it's different in in every country, um, and it's shaped by their shared experiences and um, external and internal. Uh, as you say, it's complex, very complex. So uh, what I what I see is that there there are quite a few success stories. And, and there's still a lot of suffering, but I think that indigenous people 
can move forward if they can take pride in their identities. They've got to really that really has to start from their own pride, their own acceptance of their identity, pride in their identity, and seeing value in their identity. In order that has to be there for them to move forward. And so many different tribal groups have lost that. They lost their culture. They lost lost pride in their culture. The 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 governments have you know, and the people, society have, um, you know, discriminated and, and, and shamed them. So they do nothing. They want nothing but to hide from their identities, indigenous identities. So there is no moving forward when you just want to hide. So um, and some groups actually can be very good inspirations for groups that are not doing that well. You know, preserving their culture and moving forward, and 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 for example, the, the the best example that I have found are the Maori in New Zealand. Um, when I when we were invited to New Zealand for the film festival to show Voices in the Clouds, that was a huge turning point for me because in finding my own culture, my own indigenous roots, I felt like I was part of a bigger family, and it instilled a sense of pride in me. But the family that I felt part of was here in Taiwan, and it was in my community. But when the Maori of New Zealand invited me to show the film, they told me that they wanted to see who their relatives were in Taiwan. And that was a huge shock because I never really heard about this connection called the Austronesian connection. I didn't realize the history of the... uh, Austronesians and the migration and you know where that originated and many people believe that's you know started in Taiwan so they see that Taiwan is their motherland in a sense and they wanted to learn more about them and so all of a sudden I went from feeling like I had this amazing number of people in Taiwan as a family to what there are millions, <laughs> millions of diaspora around the Pacific and all the way down here in New Zealand. And and they were watching the film and they were like, wow, she looks just like my grandmother. Oh, she looks <laughs> just like my aunt. They, they're, they're like family to them. And that excitement of having a family that big and that widespread, that was really exciting to me. But what really was inspiring was that not only was my family – large and uh proud but the maori were they were much further along in pride and preservation than anything i've seen in taiwan really and so i wanted to right away my in, in experiencing and bonding with the maori i invited them to come to taiwan and that that started one of my programs to bring the maori uh to create a culture exchange between the maori and the taiwanese um, that's something that happened in uh, 2011, 12. But anyways, what I saw was that the Maori, the Maori are a source of pride for the entire nation mm. of New Zealand. Mm. And uh, it, it wasn't always that way. They had to fight for it. And they, they, they are very proud of their culture and they fought for their culture. And they didn't just rely on the government to change their attitudes when it came to saving their own culture and language. They initiated their own preservation efforts, their own nationwide efforts. They did it themselves. 
and they didn't rely on governments. And that's what I saw in Taiwan that most people say if we want anything changed or done, we have to rely on the government. And so that was the attitude of the indigenous people that I met that, hey, there's nothing we can do. You know, only the mm. government can, can do something like that. Can, only the government can preserve the, you know, the language. So I saw that through the Maori, they didn't have to rely on the government. They won over their entire country. And they become a pride of the entire country. So I wanted to see that for the Taiwanese. That's why I invited them here to to be able to teach that to the people in Taiwan that they met. Yeah, what an example! I, I think there's quite a few stories out there about yeah. how the Maori have revived their own culture and languages, mm -hmm. most mostly on their own, and mm -hmm. how they basically won over the entire nation. You know, as as cultural. Mm -hmm. Pride, and that's what I really hope for Taiwan in the future. Mm -hmm. I, I want Taiwanese indigenous and all Taiwanese to see that everybody is indigenous here. Everyone, just check your DNA and and see what that's about. And 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 I want them to understand why their indigenous identities have a lot of value in this world, and they care about how they're seen in the world and how they're valued in the world. They care about it, but they're missing a huge opportunity because they're. They've turned away from this identity that, for so for so many generations, they've they've turned away from it. So they've missed out, missed out on the opportunities. It's so important and very empowering what you say that indigenous indigenous people should think about what they can do to preserve their rights and their culture outside the government instead of just going to the default of what should the government do and what can they do. Um, I think that's a really great message. However, I did want to talk about that piece a little bit too. Yes, um, sure. So after President Tsai was elected in 2016, there was a lot of discussion about perhaps changing Hualien and Taitung counties into autonomous regions or autonomous districts. Um, what What is the situation with that? I was there when President Tsai uh, started her presidency and um, gave the formal apology to the indigenous people. I think that was very important in setting the tone. And it's very, very rare in the world that the, the a nation's leader will acknowledge and apologize for the wrongdoings. So that was huge. Mm -hmm. And it set the table for whatever would come next, reparations or restoration of rights um, and, and autonomy. Um, and I know that she was forming, and this was back then when she first got elected, she was forming committees to look into uh, returning the lands and providing autonomy. But again, this is all processes that weren't really publicly shared and if it was shared it was in chinese and i i, I don't read chinese so I, i'm not very aware of the latest about that but uh i do know quite a few people working in the government and especially with indigenous people and and i do know that they're trying very hard to restore rights restore land um and i have mentioned to them that uh if they were able to create any type of autonomy that would be a big opportunity for Taiwan because indigenous peoples 
uh, protected by the rights, indigenous rights protected at the United Nations, actually states that indigenous peoples can create create uh, treaties with each other, including trade trade you know trade relations, and that could be a doorway to trade in Taiwan that is far less limited than what they're already experiencing. So it's a doorway that's actually uh, less limited. Hmm. And, and, and if, if the Taiwanese government could see that, I think they'd be more willing to um, provide, provide, those, provide the space for those doorways hmm. to happen. And, um, and I've learned from Native Americans in America that that's something they're, they're just – they've always had that right protected by the UN, but they've never really had the expertise and the, um, the will – to will to overcome, uh, to overcome the past and to really move forward on these rights, and and now that they, they are doing that, they're creating sovereignty. Um, they're creating sovereignty shields. They're creating zones so that they could actually create their own free trade between tribes and and governments, and and that's as a way to benefit their own communities economically. And I think Taiwan could benefit from that as well, if if they could establish that. So I don't know where the where the state is right now, but what I do know is that every effort there has been in the Thai administration to restore the land back to the indigenous people, they never can get any consensus. There's always infighting among the tribes. There's always people against whatever they want to do. I mean, can you imagine mm. wanting to give a million a million hectares of land back to indigenous people being being protested against by indigenous people? Is that that's wow. strange to me? Yeah, that is very strange. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Everything seems to be political here, so it depends on what side you're on. Sure, sure, it's very complex. Um, so, do you know what reparations the government of Taiwan has made to indigenous people, or what do you think they should they should well, offer? They've stated what they wanted to do, and it's not just indigenous people, but they're they're actually trying to get reparations and illegal illegally obtained assets back to all Taiwanese in general. Mm -hmm. All Taiwanese were wronged. So, I think um, the pressure was to focus on the other you know the the mainstream society you know th those illegally gained assets so getting those restored back or returned back to people that that's been their priority and i think indigenous people have felt like their their complaints and their issues have been put aside mm. but uh it, it's hard for me to answer these questions sure. about Taiwanese government because it's always in Chinese there's very little about it in English so it's hard for me mm -hmm. to follow but mm -hmm. I, the people that I know working for the government mm -hmm. they speak English mm -hmm. and I know they're trying very hard but they keep finding roadblocks and not not from the uh their normal adversaries but just even indigenous people standing in the way of giving back to the indigenous people mm -hmm. that that's that's what's mm -hmm. been Mm. hard for me to understand mm. but they're mm. facing that mm. i see so let's talk about um what is oh, being wait, done one more thing yes more yes thing. sorry there's yes, one no more problem. thing no problem. another issue the indigenous people want from this government is to be recognized 
So there are 16 recognized tribes. It used to be nine back when I first came to Taiwan. And and so that's been a breakthrough for many tribal peoples is being recognized. Because once they're recognized, they have access to funding, resources, and also even even the, the resources to teach the language to their own children. That's one of the things that I'm proud of that the government's doing is that they've invested in language preservation. So every indigenous child has access to a teacher and they learn their language and they have uh, motivation like um, competitions and, and rewards for indigenous children who, who actually learn their languages. And I'm proud that my children have been involved in that and, and they've experienced uh, the contests and awards and it is a nice uh, way to build pride among young people. Um, but uh, when it comes to resources, it, the tribes seem to be very competitive and they're they always it always feels like there's never enough you know they've got this attitude like ah oh, there's there's never enough i don't want to share because that means i have less and and, and i i don't see it that way because the more tribes that are recognized it doesn't take away from the what little pie that you have it actually makes your pie bigger for example, the Saraya tribe, Siraya tribe in Tainan, it's it's not recognized, but they're working on recognition. And if they do formally recognize the Saraya tribe, that would mean maybe five hundred thousand additional people that could trace their lineage back. You know, basically it's all of Tainan. If they could trace their lineage back to the Saraya tribe and be officially recognized, then they would have they would join the indigenous table in Taiwan. And so tribes, there are tribes that are actually fighting against them being recognized. Now, if you think about, okay, wow, we, we get so little from the government and that's going to give us even less. We have to share more with the Saraya. Yeah, if that's the way they think, I can see why they're fighting against that. But I think what they're not seeing is Adding 500,000 people to the table means now you have a bigger table. Now you're a bigger percentage of the population, overall population. You should have a bigger voice now. I think the goal is to have your voice louder and stronger so that more resources are available to indigenous people as a whole. It's It's not taking away. It's actually giving your... giving you a chance to have a bigger voice at the table (laughs) that's that's how i see it but i think that's a challenge they need to overcome is how they how they see themselves at the table yeah it sounds like it It sounds like that could be explaining why there's a lot of problems when it comes to returning land and getting consensus because there's a lot of competition and people may perceive it as a finite amount of pie being divided up and getting smaller and smaller um, the more you have to share it. But mm-hmm. yeah, thank you for sharing that perspective. Um, what is it that you hope that people take away from your body of work? In connecting indigenous peoples, what I hope is that first indigenous peoples realize that they're part of a bigger family than they realize. And I think the reason why a lot of indigenous people don't have pride in their culture, pride in their, uh, and value their language and culture that much is they, they don't see much value in it. And, you know, there are different reasons for that, but I, I, I would like indigenous people to see by this connection, 
that they have a lot more value than they realize. And, and if they see that, if they see the opportunities that they get by learning their language and sharing their culture and language, they'll be more motivated to learn and pass down the knowledge to their kids. And so before, when, it, when, when our NGO was focused on sharing culture and as a way to preserve the culture, I didn't realize that the reason why the culture wasn't passed down is because parents cared more about uh, how well their children learn Chinese so they can get jobs in the future. They cared more about jobs, and they cared more about economic opportunities. So I said, okay, so what they need to see is that their culture has more value and provides economic opportunities for their kids' future, right? So that wasn't really available. So the work that we do, we hope that by bringing tribes together, people that do know their language and culture get rewarded, rewarded greatly and have huge opportunities and have that inspire their local communities. You know, they'll be able to say, wow, look at this woman. She, because she was good at her culture and language, she was able to connect with other countries. She was actually able to get scholarships to get a law degree in the USA. And that's what I want to, them to see, to inspire them to pass down their native, you know, in their traditional language and culture down to their kids. So I, I, I saw that that was missing, and we're hoping that by building these connections, there's more value in the culture for indigenous people to see and to motivate them to, to want to preserve what they have. And then for the uh, for everyone else in Taiwan, I would like Taiwanese to see that, look, yes, you're Chinese, and you have a connection to China, and there's a connection to Japan, and there's a connection to other countries. But if you really want to be part of a bigger world, there are pros and cons to just focusing on one aspect of your multicultural population. If you focus on your Chinese ethnicity, how you're perceived in the world is that you're Chinese, and that may give you some opportunities, but I think it's very limited. Because anyone interested, if all the people that I've met around the world, what they, what they think about Taiwan, if, if they see it as a Chinese society, they don't really have much motivation to go to Taiwan, because they, they could go to China to experience Chinese culture. But when you show them how diverse Taiwan's society is and, and they show them indigenous people and see, wow, I can see the, the motherland of Austronesia and Polynesian culture there. They have far, they express to me far greater interest in going to Taiwan. And so that culture also connects them to millions of other indigenous people around the world. And they're missing that if, if they don't, if they don't welcome that part of their uh, identity, they're, they're really, if they don't open themselves to Taiwan being multi-ethnic and multifaceted, they're really missing a lot of connections. And I think Taiwan is desperate for connections. So they're kind of like, their focus, their China-centric focus has really limited them, and I want them to see that, and I want them to open up. That's what I hope. Wonderful. And then basically, our, our work, we hope that uh, other people in the world really see Taiwan as a far more diverse and interesting place to connect to. Um, is there anything else that you want to say that we didn't touch upon in this uh, interview? 
Um, <laughs> well, I'm really, I'm really proud of the language uh, being preserved. You know, it's really been very effective. This uh, government support, and um, so the government again can be effective in certain things, um, especially for people that always look to the government for any change. Um, it, it, that I would say that's one of the biggest success stories, language preservation. Because when I go to these contests, uh, you can see a lot of videos on my uh, YouTube channel. Yes, about we'll the, share that. Those indigenous kids, it's, it, it always makes me proud and hopeful that their culture won't disappear when I see these uh, competitions. While, while I have you as an audience, and I'll let you decide what to do with this, but uh, sure. I'd like to share a little bit more. Sure. Um, another very impactful moment for me was when I went to the United Nations in 2004. The UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues is a big forum that happens every year in May. And in 2004, I, I was invited to the UN to meet all the tribal leaders that come. And they, they go there to the UN to meet world leaders, to discuss their issues, to share their grievances, to ask for assistance. And uh, so it was a big opportunity that I had when I was planning the Indigenous International Culture Festival. I wanted to find people to invite. And a friend of mine invited me to the UN. She worked there. And I went to this uh, permanent forum, and it was amazing being in, in uh, you know, in the the bowels of the UN in New York and seeing world leaders all over and all these indigenous people. And I just happened to see a delegation from Taiwan. Hey, those are my my people right there. So I walked up to them, and they said, "Hey, join us, join us." So I became part of their delegation, and it was a delegation of indigenous youth, like teenagers. And, and college students. So they were there, and they're there every year to share their issues along with other tribes. You know, youth issues, indigenous youth issues. So here I was, an old guy and all these young people. And they invited me, and it was great to uh, feel like part of, you know, Taiwanese delegation. And we even went to the Tico, New York, and they said, oh, this is very important. You guys are representing us in the UN. And we never have this opportunity, and, and it was great. Now, I remember uh, being up on stage in front of 500 world leaders with my Taiwanese group, and uh, this, this Chinese lady said, uh, you cannot say Taiwan here. So we had to say, oh, we're from a tribe on an Asian small island, which we can't say. So that was funny. Um, but even funnier and more uh, actually scary a bit is when um, my friend from India was in the bathroom. And I was sitting waiting for a long time. And I was like, I don't know if she's still in there. I'm going to grab the first person to walk by. And I grabbed the first person to walk by was a Chinese official woman. Oh, said, Can you go in there and see if my friend is still there? She's uh, an Indian woman. So they came out together chatting away and becoming friends and my Indian friend said hey you gotta meet my friend Tony here from Taiwan and the woman looked at glared at me and um, and then uh, my my friend said and here and Tony's here to invite people to his uh, international festival and interesting fact did you know that Tony designed the new flag of Taiwan for when they're independent <gasps> I'm like what 
what is this Indian? Why is my Indian friend saying all of this? Wow. Does she know who she's talking? Because <laughs> this woman's her face, her face turned red. Her eyes were, you know, burning into me, and I was like, <laughs> all I could think of was the, the, the commercial for. Um, oh, I forgot that airline, but you know, you want to get away. Feel like you want to get out of there. I just wanted to jump out of my skin, but she was there staring at me and just started <laughs> scolding me. And I called my wife right after that experience. And said, honey, if you don't hear from me after right now, let me just tell you what happened. So <laughs> it was something I'll never forget. Oh when you wow, that does not surprise me at all. Unfortunately, <laughs> because I've heard about people not being allowed to go into the UN because they said they're from Taiwan, not even being allowed to go into the building and all these things. But you had like a confluence of so many things. <laughs> Wow. wow. Why would this Indian woman say that to her? Does she understand? It sounds like she China was kind of clueless. <laughs> she was. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I, I do I do know the Taiwanese delegation. They always have an NGO in Taiwan to sponsor them. That's yes. why they're I mean, from the USA to right. sponsor them. That's yes, why they're yes. allowed to go in. Uh-huh. They have a sponsor, and they don't represent themselves as Taiwan. But uh, I think that they've been banned, you know, for some ta- some years they're not able to go. Mm. And I know there's a solution. There is a solution because they can't ban me from going in because yeah. I have an American passport. Right. I have American ID. Right. And there are hundreds of people like me, children of indigenous mothers, each from different tribes. Mm-hmm. We can go there and represent Taiwan mm-hmm. if we want. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get out. Mm-hmm. So but they're still going to say you can't say you're from Taiwan or something. <laughs> what are they going to do? Tell us, you know, get us kicked out for having a Taiwanese passport. <laughs> so we're, we're mm. you know, we're Americans. Americans yeah. should be able to say that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Anyways. you for sharing that story, my goodness. <laughs> Glad that yeah, you made it out alive. <laughs> I'm glad you made it out alive. <laughs> yeah. That's my New York experience. Yes. That's cool. Tony, once again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time of your schedule to share all this, um, all of your experiences with us. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Felicia, for inviting me. I uh, look forward to following your podcast and sharing with people. Great. I've been speaking with Tony Coolidge, the founder of the Atayal organization, which is named after his mother's indigenous tribe. Tony spoke with me about his work with indigenous bridges through his nonprofit, the Atayal organization, and what he's learned from the indigenous people he's interacted with from around the world. To learn more about Tony, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll have a link to watch the documentary about his 2004 trip back to Taiwan and any links related to items mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, tell a friend about us, or better yet, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.